This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, Jeff Bezos, a household CEO name. Do you want to actually mention that GameStop thing again? Oh, yeah, I do. Thank you. So yeah. earlier we were talking to Dave Wilson, and I said that GameStop uh, stock had fallen into the, or had been in the single digits just a few weeks ago. I, got, I was getting it confused with AMC, so I want to correct myself. It had fallen to, you know, it had come from just about $18, $19, $20 a few right. weeks ago. All right. So good to clarify since we've been watching uh, the moves. Uh, we've also been watching the moves at Amazon in terms of changing the CEO job. Jeff Bezos, a household CEO name, and I'm guessing now, Tim, that will become true for the the new Amazon CEO who's taking on the top leadership job at the world's largest online retailer. We're talking about Andy Jassy. Let's get more about Jassy. Bloomberg News technology reporter Matt Day joining us on the phone from Seattle. Matt, great to have you here with us. Um, what do we need to know about Andy Jassy? So a few things. He's an Amazon lifer. He joined in 1997 at a Harvard Business School. So he's been you know, in Bezos' shadow for, for quite a while. He was actually the first um, you know, sort of chief of staff to, uh, to Bezos when they first established that role at Amazon. He was very much in the mold of, uh, of the executive he's been following for, for quite some time there. And what about when it comes to his role uh, with Amazon Web Services? I mean, Amazon Web Services is by far the most profitable segment when it comes to Amazon, but it's by no means the biggest. No, that's right. Um, you know, I think people were surprised. You know, it's just five, six years ago now when Amazon first broke out. The revenue from Amazon Web Services, Andy Jassy's led it since its inception. Um, it is the biggest profit driver for the company. It's really reshaped how um, corporations of all sizes buy their own technology. You know, they're far and away the leading cloud computing company. I think his his promotion really underlines the the value of uh, you know this wonky tech business to what a lot of people think of as, as a primarily retail company. Matt, I love your story, and you really get into who this guy is. And I'm curious, you know, it sounds like Jassy understood the potential for something like Amazon Web Services way before anyone else. I always talk about the time years ago when the Bloomberg story came out and it was like, if you were streaming XYZ last night, you probably were doing it through an Amazon Web Server. And we were like, what? Wait, what, what is this business that Amazon's into? What was it that Jassy saw and that enabled him to kind of just get out there and in many ways own this market? So Jesse and Bezos and a few other Amazon executives, you know, 15 years ago now, they looked at the way that companies buy technology, run technology, and realized it was all, you know, kind of cumbersome and complicated to string together. So they worked to simplify it to its simplest parts, right? And that's, that's really what they launched with. Here's an online storage service. Here's an online, you know, the equivalent of, of processing power, raw, raw computer chips uh, for rent, essentially. Um, and by kind of breaking it down into its simplest parts, they made a really, really simple case that, you know, maybe customers uh, wanted to string all this together themselves, and, and they were they were proved right by that. Um, you know, folks did want that kind of simplicity and, and ease of use, um, and it's really reshaped things. What about when it comes to Jeff Bezos's management style? Um, you know, you, you said that Jassy has been at Amazon for uh, as a lifer. Uh, what does it mean in terms of how he's going to lead Amazon similarly or, or, or different than Jeff Bezos has led it? 
He's, he's definitely in the Bezos mold in terms of how he structures his team, right? There's these, these legendary uh, weekly meetings he'll have where they dive into data and, and try to pick out trends and, and kind of lead with the customer and lead with the numbers. That's very uh, Bezosian in the way that he structured it. I think it, it's too soon to tell how he's going to bring, um, what change he might bring rather to the retail side of the business. And he's been, been diving into cloud for, for a very long time. And though he's been in all the, all the top meetings, you know, he hasn't been running day-to-day operations for the company is sprawling other divisions. Um, so I think we've, the expectation is for a, a similar style to, to Bezos and then maybe something different as he gets his, his hands into the other elements of the company. Well, that's what I want to ask you because you said very much in the mold of Jeff Bezos, which could be an incredible thing and certainly be calming to investors right now. But at the same time, you know, what do what does Amazon need in a CEO going forward? Especially then you, you still have the safety net of Jeff Bezos being around. I think Bezos would, would probably say that Amazon still needs to make big bets. Um, you know, so they are they are a, a giant company, and I think they get the reputation for sort of winning in, in every market they they enter. Amazon doesn't see it that way. They they look around and they see fierce competitors in in every area in which they play, whether it's Walmart, retail, Microsoft, and cloud. You know, there's plenty of others down the line. And so I think that the marching orders for him coming in certainly, as Bezos would would project it, is to keep making those kind of large bets that can move the needle for you know what's already a, a you know one point seven trillion dollar company. Hey Matt, what does this mean for Amazon Web Services now? Because um, look, since Amazon established AWS years ago, there is so much more competition, and there's also uh, pricing pressure. Yeah, for sure, and that's it's been a little bit of a debate in the financial analyst community. You know, what threat do uh, you know, Microsoft and Google, who are very much you know following the AWS playbook, what threat do they present to to Amazon's cash cow? You know, I, I think this this elevation certainly answers the, you know, does Amazon want to cleave off Amazon Web Services conversation? It's been a, a long point of debate about whether it'd be worthwhile to spin off that unit just because of the obvious differences from the retail business. You know, Jassy taking the, the top role probably cools that uh, for, for a little bit anyway. Right, because do they in some ways, it, it provides them a bit of a cushion to have that uh, company part of, you know, the Amazon umbrella at this point? Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think there's there's been some drag from the, uh, uh, if you're sitting in on the AWS side anyway, just all of the sort of political entanglements that Amazon has found itself in thanks to its, its market power in retail and, and some of the, the you know personal feuds uh, between you know former President Trump and, and Jeff Bezos. You know, I think if, if Andy were being a little candid, Andy Jesse, he might admit that uh, you know being related to Amazon is maybe hurt AWS in some sales conversations over the years. So it's a, a tricky political line to navigate for. Yeah. Uh, for the, and- the and it's interesting, too, that you say while they are similar creatures, um, Andy, he's very much into philanthropy, uh, which is something that... That's ha- new to Jeff Bezos. I yeah. Think. And Amazon, I think, overall, yeah. some would say. Um, so great story. Uh, Matt, really appreciate it. Matt Day, tech reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So just a few days ago, the Associated Press came out with an analysis of 17 U.S. states and two cities, and they found that black people inoculated with the COVID-19 vaccine, Tim, at disproportionately low levels. So once again, we see these inequities. It's not just happening nationwide, but here in New York City as well. Yeah, we definitely see that. So let's see what uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes has to say about that. Chairman of T.D. Jakes Foundation. He's on the phone once again with us from Dallas. Uh, Bishop Jakes, good to have you here with us. And I know this is something that has been front and center for you. You all recently hosted an event that included Dr. Anthony Fauci to get a better understanding of the COVID-19 vaccine. Talk to us about that event and what the takeaways were from Dr. Fauci. 
uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you, Carolyn, to be with you, Tim, today. Uh, we did Conversation with America, which anybody can go see on our TDJ's YouTube channel. Uh, and we did an extensive uh, conversation with Dr. Kismikia Corbett and Dr. Oguagu from Yale University, and she's from the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and, of course, Dr. Fauci, just to aggregate information and ask some questions that would help to alleviate some concerns or address some of the concerns that are uh, prevalent in the African-American community. Do you think those concerns, Bishop Jakes, are, are being addressed? Are, are you hearing that those concerns are, are shifting as we learn more and more about the vaccines? I, I think that they are gradually shifting in certain pockets. Of course, the African-American community is not a monolith. And so depending on your age and, and, and who you congregate or coalesce with, uh, your perception of the situation might be varied according to your age group and how closely associated you are with the tremendous amount of deaths that we are seeing. Uh, being a pastor also, I'm abundantly aware of how many funerals we're conducting mm-hmm. and really have a front row seat on the families behind the numbers. So it's very apparent to me that we are definitely losing lives at a much larger rate than our white counterparts. And uh, so it was really important to me to use our platform to level the playing floor and get out uh, uh, adequate and accurate information so that people can make their own determination. Right. The CDC did come out and they've talked about black, Hispanic, and Native American people dying from COVID-19 at almost three times the rate of white people. So Bishop Jakes, do you feel like things are improving, that there's more information out there, maybe education to put the black community maybe more at ease so that they will up in terms of uh, their numbers for getting the vaccine? My biggest concern is that even where the uh, attitude is improving, the access is not. Mm -hmm. So we're only having about 10% uh, penetration into the black community where it is accessible, particularly to our older citizens where they can easily get in for one and then come back and get the second uh, vaccination that's necessary to uh, secure some relative safety from, from being infected. And so that, that is a problem. Accessibility is a problem. And then dispelling this continues to be a challenge. I think it's something that we're going to be working on all through first and second quarter of the year, probably into the third quarter, uh, getting them comfortable just due to the fact that we've had so many historical disparaging uh, incidents that have occurred between health professionals, government officials, and the black community that have continued to cause an angst and an anxiety amongst people of color in trust associated with uh, taking the vaccination. Right. I think it's important to keep in mind there is historical context and lots of reason for people to be skeptical um, especially in the black community about this. Um, very briefly, you are a great communicator. You have more than 4 million Twitter followers. You've built up a huge following. What is the right way for the Biden administration or even local officials to communicate in communities throughout the United States uh, that this is a vaccine that is safe and that people need to get? I think that you, the community most trust its own uh, leadership. There are various leaders. Uh, mm. The faith community is one aspect of it, but also personalities of interest that also have coalesced huge following the people uh, that they trust uh, their motives. I think that's one aspect of it. And I think people, everyday people off the street, influence people more than even personalities do. So I think they have to use a multi-pronged approach in order to dispel myths. And unfortunately, 
you're also fighting the onslaught of social media and, and wrong information being right. perpetuated through all of those vehicles. Well, and I think everyone hopes, too, that as people see more and more people get the vaccine and as time goes on and hopefully with a safe outcomes, that more people will step up and take it. Um, Bishop Jakes, always good to check in with you. Be well. Chairman of the T.D. Jakes Foundation on the phone from Dallas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Well, I got to say, Tim, I've lost count how many COVID-related cover stories Bob Langreth has done for Business Week. He's covered Gilead, Remdesivir. He's covered the White House COVID outbreak. It has been so many different stories, and we've learned so much from him. Yeah, we certainly have. And this one is the cover story, and the cover of Bloomberg Business Week this week is ready for the next one, and it features a large picture of a bat. Yes, it does. So uh, it's really kind of warning us. Here's what we've got to do to be ready for the next one. Let's get into it with Bob. He is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. It's a reminder, Joel, there will be more pandemics and epidemiological crises if um, we've got a plan for it. Well, we need a plan for it. And, yeah. you know, that the, the cover line there, ready for the next one, it ends with a question mark, like ready for the next one. <laughs> and yeah. right now we are not. And um, what Bob did um, and reported out here, and I've lost track of how many cover stories yeah. uh, Bob's done over the course of the last year for us. Uh, it's been truly amazing. Um, but what he really maps out here is the five point plan. And if we were to get on it and, you know, jump all over this five-point plan, we might find ourselves um, in a pretty decent place, certainly a better one than we found ourselves in a year ago, uh, right about now. Um, and, and Bob, along the way, you also got some exclusive reporting uh, about you know how close we were to actually maybe having uh, a leg up on, on viruses like this. Um, so walk us through what, what you learned um, as you reported out uh, your cover story. Yeah, so it turns out, uh, as I did this reporting, you know, that there were a, a lot of people thinking about this and interested, you know, uh, years. They didn't know it was going to be a coronavirus, but everyone knew something was coming eventually that infectious disease experts did. And there were people that were thinking about how to prepare and how to do things, but uh, there just wasn't the willpower and energy to get it done. And one company, GlaxoSmithKline, I found out through my reporting, actually proposed a whole uh, kind of a epidemic uh, preparedness vaccine research center they proposed this to uh, the U.S. government, to BARDA, uh, which is what's funding a lot of the vaccines now. It's a small agency funding a lot of the vaccines now. And they proposed a research center that would look to, have looked in specifically into messenger RNA vaccines. That's uh, one of the successful vaccines. And adenovirus-based vaccines. That's the other type of vaccine that's been successful. And the idea was they would have taken, like, everything uh, that you know looked worrisome and gotten prototype vaccines you know, into early trials so they could be ready to go and invent the next epidemic, but it just didn't happen. So we weren't quite as prepared you know, as we should have been. Right, and we should have been, right? We could have been. That's the whole point. And the cost of this thing, yeah, it would have been $595 million over 10 years, which I guess sounded like a lot you know, three or four years ago, but... <laughs> compared to the cost we've had to bear now through this pandemic, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, 
you know, nothing like that. Now people are kind of dusting off versions of the proposal and saying, let's, let's do it again. Let's do something similar. And some of these ideas are out there. So what you know, we need is the willpower to do it. And another idea that's uh, out there is to form, you know, one of the problems we had is, is good, you know, data on the uh, right at these key moments when epidemics are starting to emerge, uh, you know, it's sort of like a uh, early in a forest fire. You've got to identify it and identify the threats really soon and act. And for that, you need really, really good surveillance and really, really, really good data. And one of the, the ideas that's out there is to form a sort of a national weather uh, service style hmm. agency uh, that would model, uh, you know, upcoming emerging viruses and pandemics and come up with forecasts that were more reliable, uh, uh, you know, to, to, tell, to warn people, tell them, you know, what's coming or what might be coming and you know, give politicians kind of the, the fortitude and cover to act. So what about what when the Biden it... administration yeah, is looking into? What about when it comes to international cooperation and making sure there is international cooperation for the next pandemic? One of the key themes that you highlight is repairing and augmenting the WHO. Yeah, and this is probably, you know, this is an area that people are talking about, and it's probably the, the trickiest, most difficult area to 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 fix or improve or reform, because the basic problem we have is, you know, that vi- the viruses, they cross borders. They don't care about you know, countries and international borders or, you know, which political regime is in power. They, they go everywhere, and that's what we found. Uh, and yet, uh, so we want companies, countries to cooperate as much as possible in kind of reporting the early stages of the pandemic. But the problem is no one really has the authority uh, to do that. To and, and, and if countries that don't report on time because they don't want to admit the scope of the problem, it might hurt their economy, et cetera. And we've seen this again and again. Then the world is a step behind. And the WHO... Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't have a lot of teeth. That's just the way it's structured. So there's, there's rumblings and discussions of what else can we do? You know, what can, can we give the WHO more teeth? Or we can, can we add to it to give some other group uh, uh, sort of a, a, it was called like a, you know, a NATO uh, for emerging, emerging viruses, you know, biological NATO. Right. would have, you know, a little more uh, power, maybe a group of like-minded nations to prepare. So that's this kind of idea that's out there that people are, are trying to formulate and try to figure out what to do. But that's probably the single, you know, most difficult area. Uh, Bob, another thing that um, you talk about in the story is effectively how blind we're flying right now, especially as these variants start to come at us. And and really the solution there is genetic sequencing. Uh, How can we uh, improve our genetic sequencing, which is almost like non-existent at this point in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, that should be one of the uh, uh, simpler areas to fix. I mean, you know, we have the kind of the technology is there. We have the technology. We just kind of haven't applied this on a national scale and made it a priority and uh, then you know which you know some other countries have done they're far ahead of us on this i think we sequence about three out of a thousand uh, uh cases of the virus so we just get a tiny tiny sampling and some other countries like england are doing five percent and some smaller countries are even doing more so we're kind of way way behind and this is something just basically a national effort uh and making a national priority of it would just make a big difference. And the other thing that needs to be done is there needs to be an effort to kind of push more of the sequencing expertise. Because we're a federal system, a lot of things are in states and local public health labs. We need an effort to push a lot of the expertise out into state and local 
public health labs that are doing the contact tracing. But this is fixable if someone just needs to make it a priority. Yeah, it's really logical. And you have four and five, you say, developing more vaccines faster for those uh, kind of worrisome virus classes that are out there. Like, let's let's start working on them now. And also a big one, which we know has been a problem, ironing out distribution and logistics. Uh, It's the cover story of uh, the U.S. Bloomberg Business Week, and we'll put that out on Twitter. But it's a great kind of five-point list of things that we need to do. Um, Bob, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bob Langrath, he is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. All of his reporting on COVID has been incredible. Our thanks to to Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So it's the story that broke late yesterday, the business story heard around the globe, safe to say, right? Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, Carol. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, hey Tim, stepping down as CEO. Yeah, look, when you think of Amazon, you think of Jeff Bezos. It started in his garage in the 1990s, took it public a couple of years after starting it. The yeah. guy has been running it since then. Yeah, and as our Brad Stone writes, the move seemed like, uh, despite being a surprise, seemed like the natural next step and opens up really a new age for the world's largest online retailer. So let's get into it uh, with our go-to voice on everything Amazon. He's Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Technology, author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos, and The Age of Amazon. And uh, Brad's got a new book coming out, too, that's on Amazon called Amazon Unbound. And Brad joins us uh, on the phone in San Francisco. That book comes out in May, available for pre-order. So you are such our Amazon insider, Amazon veteran, but you were surprised by this news. (laughs) <laughs> right, Carol. I was telling Tim actually earlier today that I think I, uh, you know, uttered a loud expletive when I saw the news. Um, in some, in some ways, it is. It does feel like a natural progression and a formulation of the formalization of the status quo at Amazon, where he's really been working on new things and allowing his deputies to run the the bigger businesses. But it's also surprising. I mean, you know, he. This is someone who, you know, micromanaged his businesses, whose identity is wrapped up in Amazon, who obviously took and deserves, a, you know, a lot of credit for the remarkable rise of this company over the past 25 years, $1.7, $1.7 trillion in market cap. Um, so it's hard to imagine him moving on. Um, it's, it's probably going to be a little bit of a test of, of Andy Jassy to see how much room he has and can take to operate with Bezos still there as executive chairman and, and placing a lot of these big bets. Were, were you surprised at all by Andy Jassy being the person who was named to fill Bezos's shoes? Not at all. And in, in some respects, though, you kind of look back and you wonder whether this has been in the works for a while. So there was a lot of speculation about the succession plan and whether it was Jassy or Jeff Wilkie. You know, Wilkie was another deputy who for uh, many years ran the, the retail group. Um, before that really architected Amazon supply chain, you know, he, he was a possibility to take over as well. And then last year we found out that Wilkie was going to retire uh, in January of 2021. So who knows, maybe the, the writing was on the wall and he saw it. But where it does make sense is, is Jassy has, you know, built this amazing business, AWS, a $50 billion run rate, you know, really changed the way companies and governments and universities buy their technology. You know, now they, they do it in the cloud or rather than servers in the in the back room. Um, he's, he's changed enterprise computing. You've got Microsoft and Google and IBM and Oracle pursuing Amazon. But Jackie also has the, the you know, the, the full a handle on the full company because he sat on the S team. He's been a part of major decisions like where to put HQ2 and whether to buy Whole Foods. And when he started at the company in the late 90s, 
he worked in the retail group. So he, he really had the full scope of the company, and it kind of makes sense that he, he'd be the guy to step up. All right. I have to say that in your story, I was drawn to this. You say Bezos' decision to step down also reflects an uncomfortable reality for one of the wealthiest people in the world, and that is the walls of his highly compartmentalized empire have been crumbling for some time. I don't look at Amazon, uh, Brad, typically and think of it as crumbling, but so what do you mean? Right, right. Well, actually, that's a good point, Carol. So, and this is a, a theme of my upcoming book. Um, Bezos, you know, is the largest shareholder and, and the outgoing CEO of Amazon, but he also owns the Washington Post, personally. He has a private space company, Blue Origin. He's got an, an investment fund and a family office, and he's got these philanthropies now, um, the Day One Fund and the Bezos Climate Fund, or the Bezos Earth Fund, and a lot of there's a lot of pressure on him to give away his money. And over the past few years, we've seen a collision in all these assets. So the Washington Post made life very difficult for Amazon during the Trump administration. Um, you've got um, union organizers and, and 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 workers protesting Amazon's treatment of its of its warehouse workers in front of Bezos, you know, personal properties, homes around, around the country. Um, and, he, and as he's been trying to give away his money to climate organizations, they've expressed concern about Amazon's climate impact and its its uh, its relationship with organized labor. So that's what I mean by the walls kind of crumbling. Yeah. He can't keep everything compartmentalized anymore. You also have this anecdote about him traveling to India in early, the early part of last year and Prime Minister Narendra Modi declining to meet with him uh, because of the Post's coverage of the country. I guess my question is, can you then, with Jeff Bezos as executive chairman, but no longer as CEO, will that help solve some of these issues? Or is he like inextricably bound to Amazon? Yeah, that's a great point, Tim. It, it, it's, he, can't, he can't escape it that easily. Um, you know, for, for guidance, we can kind of look to Bill Gates, though, right, who, who was really seen 20 years ago as a, as a monopolist, uh, you know, sharp business elbows, um, the government, the, the way the U.S. government's coming down on Microsoft. And now he's really a roving philanthropist diplomat who's been a leader um, in, in this in this pandemic crisis. So, yeah, in the short term, no. I mean, Jeff obviously can't outrun Amazon and he'll be inextricably linked to the company and all of its political issues. But maybe over the long term, as Bill Gates has done, he can kind of chart a path for himself as a more independent philanthropist. Listen, and Jeff made it very clear, um, Brad, that he's not retiring. Um, so where should he, where will he spend most of his time going forward? It's all going to be about the, the geeky inventions and the big, and the bets that he thinks could lead to Amazon's next wave of growth. And this is one of those things that I observed reporting in the new book. He, he loves to micromanage and, and, and really get into the weeds of the new things. Um, so I'm going to mute my uh, Alexa before I say the word Alexa. So it <laughs> but he he really he really micromanaged Alexa, um, the the cashierless Amazon ghost stores. He was he was deeply involved in that. The healthcare initiatives Amazon is trying, Project Kuiper, which is this very expensive effort to get satellites into space and to and to sell internet access. He's involved in that. And, you know, he sees these as, as big bets. He, he's really an, an inventor at heart. Um, I'm sure they'll read him into the big decisions. They call mm. them one-way doors, kind of Amazon lingo for decisions that can't be reversed. Um, but I expect that um, in addition to all the other stuff, he's going right. to continue uh, to basically geek out at Amazon. Brad, I want to talk about space. 
when it comes to the wealthiest people in the world, uh, Jeff Bezos is number two. Elon Musk is number one, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. They are both involved in a new kind of space race. Where does uh, Jeff Bezos stack up versus Elon Musk? Right. Well, it's not a favorable juxtaposition, at least right now. I mean, SpaceX is launching, it seems, every week, uh, the, the Dragon 9, to, um, uh, to orbit to the International Space Station. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been testing, I guess, the, the Starship, the, the, the larger rocket, with kind of entertain, entertainingly exploded upon attempted landing yesterday. But um, SpaceX also announced that they're going to be bringing um, paying astronauts, paying tourists to orbit. And, and Blue Origin, you know, frankly, hasn't really, hasn't really hit any of those benchmarks. It, it has always taken a more step-by-step approach. Um, the, the first project is called New Shepard, and he wants to take, like, like Richard Branson, uh, Blue Origin wants to take paying tourists to suborbital space, so the very edge of space. And they've been working on that for 15 years. And I, I gather and I reported that they're, gonna, that they're hoping to take human passengers later this year. But that's going to be a big test for the CEO, Bob Smith, uh, who, who joined a couple of years ago um, to see whether they can really safely pull that off. And then Blue Origin's building a rocket called New Glenn, which will more directly compete with uh, with SpaceX's uh, launch capacity. But that's delayed, and, and that's probably got a couple of years until it, it comes out of the factory. So Bezos spends a lot of money on this. I, you know, they profess that it's not a competition, that they're taking their time, that there's lots of room for many winners in, in this growing category. But I know that I, I suspect and, and strongly suspect that the mismanagement there and the slow progress really frustrates Jeff Bezos. Yeah, it's got to. And, I, you know, Tim and I were talking in the break, Brad. I remember when it felt like these space companies, whether it was Branson, whether it was Elon Musk, whether it was Jeff Bezos, that it just seemed like a kind of a fun thing for billionaires. Elon Musk has shown it's a lot more serious than that and a real business um, going forward. I do wonder, speaking of fun, the timing of this, is it just not as much fun to, to run the company? Mm. I'm just trying to understand a little bit about Jeff Bezos and his timing. Well, you know, we don't, of course, know for sure because they're being very circumspect in, in what they say. But we can we can take a couple of guesses as to why Bezos has, has mo- is moving on later this year from the CEO role to be executive chairman. And I think you're right. I mean, what, one of it, one of the factors is that the CEO of the company is going to be the guy getting grilled in Washington, getting grilled by the FTC, getting grilled in in Brussels. And as we saw last year, when Bezos had to testify in front of the House Antitrust uh, Subcommittee, he would probably be rather doing other things. And you've got, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google is now completely invisible, and Sundar has to go answer the question. So. Yeah, I suspect um, he he would rather be spending his time doing other things. But look, I think it's also that he's he wants to make a philanthropic contribution, mm-hmm. and his time is pretty constrained. Um, and also, you know, there's he's he you know probably he's, he's earned two, he has a two hundred billion dollar fortune and probably wants to take it a little bit easier. So and the fact that he's really not going anywhere and will continue to contribute at Amazon. So I think those are all part of part of the larger picture. Brad, you, you mentioned before we went to break, uh, talking about the initiatives that in the past Bezos has worked on, some of the hardware efforts, uh, the company Alexa, for example. Um, what does that tell you about what Bezos is thinking about 
as executive chairman? I mean, what are the sort of, you know, borrow a Google phrase, the moonshots that the company right. is thinking about right now? Yeah. Well, from a broad perspective, you know, he, he believes that Amazon at, at the current size needs to take really big bets if it's going to continue growing. And, and so that's, you know, where he's, he's spending his time. He's, he's focused on the kind of future horizon of technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, satellite-borne internet access. Amazon has an ambitious project called Project Kuiper that competes with Elon Musk's uh, Starlink as part of SpaceX. <laughs> there it is again. <laughs> launch. Yeah, exactly. There's a real rivalry there. Um, the, the healthcare initiative, they have a, a group inside Amazon that they call the Grand Challenge. And in a very Amazon-like way, they're not trying one thing, they're trying many things. So they have a, a telehealth service for employees that they're going to start offering to other companies. They have walk-in clinics. There are things that you can do with Alexa and ask it health questions. Of course, there was Haven Healthcare with uh, J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway, which they just closed. Right. And I think Jeff's very, very involved in that and determining what experiments to, should proceed. So yeah. that's where he's going to spend his time to, to place those next bets. All right. Give us a 20-second tease, elevator pitch, or just a tease for your book coming out. <laughs> Amazon Unbound, coming in May. How did a company in, t in 2013 with 150,000 employees and a $150 billion market cap turn into the $1.7 trillion company with 1.2 million employees? I chart the, the whole path in addition to Bezos' evolution into this international man of mystery and tabloid fascination. Sounds great. I'm going to put my pre-order in. You can already pre-order it now. <laughs> Do it. I mean, look, the Everything Store was so good. I can't wait for this one, Brad. All right, Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Tech here at Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's just about what, 11 minutes to go until we wrap up this trading day. And we've got uh, the S&P off its best levels of the day. Uh, Dow pretty much just at its best levels of the day. And the NASDAQ uh, off its highs and lows. Let's get into it with Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. They've got roughly $11.5 in assets under management. And uh, Alan joining us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, good to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Doing fantastic, Carol and Tim. Hopefully, you've dug yourself out of the snow and you're doing reasonably well. Halfway, my car, my car wouldn't move this morning, Alan. <laughs> but you know, you're in California, so you, you know, you have little sympathy. You know, I don't get it. We pay the high taxes here, like in New York, but we don't get the snow. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Okay, <laughs> Tim's. I'm car, a Californian. Tim's car is frozen in a parking. It's lot. literally frozen in a parking <laughs> lot, and my my back hurts as a result. So, uh, gosh, what a week. Where do I start? Let's talk about Amazon because we are all in on it today. Uh, safe to say 24 hours ago or close to it, we were all shocked by the news that essentially Jeff Bezos resigning as the CEO of the company, not going away. But you like and you look at some of these, you know, big U.S. companies, some of these big U.S. growth stocks. How do you see that news? I don't find it that surprising. Um, 
Uh, Listen, obviously, Bezos has done an incredible job, uh, unworldly, one of the greatest business transformations we've ever we will ever witness. But the timing ain't bad. Think of it this way: you took a company from nothing to you know um, a massive amount of, of, of value, nearly two trillion in value. Do you really want to be the person that tries to get up to four trillion in value? It's just not going to be as rewarding. And the other issue uh, for Jeff, he's got a lot of other business interests. He, he actually has a, a charity that he's trying to give $10 billion away for climate change. He's running a space business at, frankly, Blue Origin that's behind SpaceX. He's got an ego just like Elon Musk, and he probably wants to focus on some other aspects. And lastly, think of it this way. He's still got $200 billion of personal equity in the company. So when he's stepping away, he's not really completely stepping away. He's got a team of 26 people backing him. That's his S team. He's already been groomed to take over for him. So far from being at a shock, it's kind of time for him to step away, let the other people run the business, and he's going to have plenty of strategic influence and insight going forward anyway. So it's it's time. One number that we've heard a, a lot today, Alan, has been $1.7 trillion. It's the market cap of Amazon right now. And I, I know, thanks to a note from our producers, that you think that future returns for both stocks and, and bonds even are right now likely constrained by today's elevated valuations. Um, what do you think is overvalued? Um, I think the biggest thing that's overvalued is traditional bonds, hmm. not stocks. However, when you value stocks, in the end, what you're doing is you're valuing the future cash flows, which are based on where rates are, discount rates. GameStop excluded from this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't use my surplus check to buy call options on GameStop like others. Um, when you start to see interest rates rise, I believe that is the singular greatest fundamental threat to the stock market. Um, I don't think you're going to see a rapid dramatic and horrible rate rise in rates because I think the Federal Reserve is going to slowly jawbone and manipulate that rate to move up in a more orderly fashion. You'll get it coming up in fits and starts over years, not over months or quarters. But because rates eventually creep up, they compete with stocks for where capital goes. And basically, people pay lower multiples on their earnings on those stocks once rates go higher and higher. Or thought, think of differently your present value is worth less when you're using a higher discount rate on future cash flow. So that's a long-winded way of saying, when you do the math, if you thought you were going to make 10% in the next decade on stocks, maybe you're going to make 7%. It's not zero, and it's still a lot better than bonds, but it's probably lower than the 13% you made in the previous 10 years, which was higher than 10% a year. So this decade, maybe we give back a little of the over-return we made in the previous decade. Okay. So you're saying the bond, wait, I'm sorry. So are you saying bonds are the better way to go? No, no, far from it. So okay. to be clear, I think traditional bonds are not a terribly attractive asset class because you get you know what you're making the moment you buy it, which your treasury bond right now is 1%. Right, High quality corporate bonds is about 2%. I do think stocks are going to give you a much higher return than bonds, but instead of making 10% per year, Okay. Because I think eventually the price earning multiples drop from what they are today. That reduces the return. If you work it out in the math, what might have been a 10% return looks more like a 7% return. Because even though I'm paying 23 times earnings today, 10 years from now, someone's only going to pay 16 times those earnings. The earnings are going to grow a lot. 
the 16 times a lot of earnings will work out to my money growing at about 7% a year, but not 10% a year. So it's like getting back to more realistic views, certainly when it comes to the equity returns. Is that fair? Or historical returns? I I think that's right. But one other important caveat, it turns out PE ratios, valuations literally have zero predictive ability over the next 12 months about where the markets are going. So even if I tell you the market's marginally overvalued versus averages, they could just get more overvalued over the next year. And with all the stimulus that's been thrown in this economy and consumers being in great shape, I wouldn't be surprised if the stock market does better than 10% this year. I Hmm. think all the conditions are in place for a very strong year this year. Eventually, rates will move up and multiples will compress a bit. Well, NASDAQ's already at NASDAQ's already at 5% year to date. So it's, you know, halfway there. Um, I I do wonder about when you think of portfolio construction, you think there are opportunities uh, away from traditional equities and fixed income, private, private real estate, private credit and equity replacements. What are the what are the alternatives that that you're thinking about? Uh, Well, in a world where I can only make 1% after tax buying high quality bonds, Assume uh, I can find the right vehicles, either REITs, either in the public markets or even in the private markets, if properly structured, can give me a good rate of return. It turns out there are firms that make private loans to private businesses. And if they're thoughtfully done where you're the senior lender and have the lien on all the collateral and assets, you could argue they make closer to 8 to 10 percent. It's taxable. That's still after tax 4 or 5 percent. That's a lot more interesting. There are other obscure areas of the market things that are called secondary investments when you're actually buying someone else's illiquid investment. They need cash and they are willing to sell to you at a discount from the current value of that, that investment in order to get out. All yeah. those things might make sense. All right, we're going to leave it there. Alan Zafran, thank you so much. Founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital, $11.5 billion in assets under management on the phone from Foster City, California. You're smiling. Yeah, California must be nice right now. <laughs> no, I'm homesick. Get, I can't wait for you to be able to dig out your car. Let's <laughs> hope it gonna... gets a little warmer. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.